Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, references to online resources mentioned in the episode will be available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. It's somewhat annoying, but a fact of the podcasting ecosystem that getting good ratings increases our visibility on the podcast apps. And that helps us build audience, which helps us continue to get the great guests that we have on the show. So please, when you're done listening today, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Thanks. Today's guest is Simon Dedeo. Simon is assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences. There, he directs the Laboratory for Social Minds. He is also a member of the external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. And unless he wins a Nobel Prize, certainly a possibility, perhaps he'll be best known as the first guest on the Jim Rutt Show. Yep, Simon was EP1. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but thanks to Simon, it turned out to be a classic nonetheless. Check it out. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, Jim. It's good to be here again. Yeah, this is, I think, your third appearance. Uh, Always good to have you. We always have a good conversation. Today, we're going to start out talking about a paper that Simon wrote with another fellow called From Probability to Consilience, How Explanatory Values Implement Bayesian Reasoning. Quite a mouthful, but uh, I'm sure it'll all be much clearer by the time we're done. Uh, Simon's uh, co-author, to make sure he gets due credit, was uh, Zachary Waltowicz. Is that that pretty close? Sure. All right. So let's jump in. I mean, the... uh, uh, you know, sort of the, the subtitle or the sub-subtitle, something. Uh, basically, you uh, said what your goal here was, was explaining explanation. What do you mean by that at kind of the highest level? Uh, well, so, you know, Zach and I, uh, both of us, and I should say Zach's a graduate student, right? So this is, uh, this is him building his, his uh, career. It's very exciting to see. Um, you know, we're, we have both been enchanted by, excited by, certainly interested in um, machine learning, right? Uh, the use of AI to you know, get things done, get things done perhaps in a more efficient way, uh, in a fairer way, one hopes. Uh, machine learning computers, the way we you know, reward them, the things we strive for, we want them to be really good at predicting the world. And I think we have missed something crucial about the human experience, which is actually, Jim, like, first of all, we're terrible at predicting the world, right? You and I, right? I mean, maybe you're better, right? But I'm terrible at it. We're terrible at predicting the world. And actually, most of the time, when we talk about the future, right? And in fact, most of the talk we do is not about prediction, but about explanation, trying to make sense of the things that have already happened. So uh, you and I might say, you know, you might say, why has social media gone bananas? Uh, what we're doing there and the kind of conversation we're going to have is uh, a conversation that attempts to, in some way, make the events of the past comprehensible to us. We want to make sense of them. We want to say, for example, why they happened or perhaps how they happened. Only as an ancillary to that do we care if anything we say is useful for predicting what happens next, right? So, you know, 
Zach and I, one of the things we wanted to do was just focus on this really fundamentally human task. We come at it as cognitive scientists, uh, but we're also hoping to, in some way, connect to the work that's being done in AI. Right? If AI is obsessed with prediction and humans are obsessed with explanation, maybe we can tell a story mathematically in the language of AI, but about human things. Very, very interesting. And you guys talk about the fact that, uh, you know, explanatory values appear very early. You know, kids are always trying to explain things, and sometimes the explanations are pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, talk about that a little bit, how, uh, you know, from a human development perspective, uh, the idea of explanation starts to come into our lives. This is uh, something that was really exciting for me, and you know, I had no idea uh, the extent to which something I thought of as a really you know, advanced thing, right? So let's explain you know, the electromagnetic field. That's fine, right? Um, but looking into the research done in child development, it's, it's amazing how quickly children are interested in building explanations. And in fact, we can see some of the same biases, some of the same predilections in how children explain things. Um, uh, that, that adults also have. Uh, one way to think about it, you know, a couple of years ago, we got really interested, you know, people got very interested in, uh, you know, how our sense of beauty was quite uh, universal and quite learned, learned quite early, at least some aspects of it. So we see a preference for symmetry, right? We see, you know, children look longer at things that adults consider beautiful as well. So there's a sense that children share aesthetic values with adults that these develop very early. Um, in a similar way, it seems like, and this is, happens at age three, four, maybe, uh, children have similar tastes for what makes a good explanation that adults have. Some of the basic features are already in place. And so, you know, some aspects of explanation making, you know, maybe we learn them in college, but a lot of it, a lot of really kind of, you know, low level operating system stuff is, uh, is, is baked in very early. Sort of makes sense, but it's also kind of surprising, right? We haven't been uh, doing linguistic explanations for all that long as a species, somewhere between, you know, 35,000 maybe and 100,000 years. Uh, and to have uh, developed a kind of a consistent taste and explanation already is kind of cool. Uh, going a little further into your paper, uh, you talk about two descriptive lenses or explanatory lenses for explanation, the lens of description and the lens of power. Uh, why, don't you why don't we talk about those a little bit? Right. So, you know, and I really want to bring this down to a kind of just ordinary stuff, right? Jim, it's like, you know, my uh, computer won't turn on. Why? Right. Um, you know, my, my friend didn't call me back. Why? Um, you know, these are things we do all the time, right? And one of the first points you make in this paper is that you always have two things in play. Okay? You have, on the one hand, you have what the explanation does for the data you have to handle, right? So, um, you know, my friend, um, you know, didn't ring. Okay, one piece of data might be, did he, uh, you know, is he you know, chronically forgetful? Another piece of data might be, is he, um, you know, was it late at night? Another piece of data might be, is it Saturday? Did it happen on a Saturday as opposed to a Thursday? So there's all these facts that are sitting there. And one of the things that explanation does is, you know, make sense of these facts. And we evaluate the explanation in terms of how well it does 
at predicting or at least, you know, making more or less likely the facts you have. So, you know, why didn't my friend call? Um, you know, uh, he didn't call because his uh, phone was broken, right? That's an explanation, his phone died, right? But then you might say, ah, but you know what? Like Susan got a call from him, um, you know, 10 minutes after he was meant to call me. So all of a sudden this explanation doesn't look as good. And the reason it doesn't look as good is because it just doesn't fit the facts. So that's, that's one thing that's always in play. And that's the descriptive lens. Exactly. That's, you know, description is part of that. Um, uh, you know, it's like, hey, you know, that's a terrible explanation because like, you know, you've only explained half of it, um, you know, or it even is contradicted by the other stuff I know. So that's, that's one thing. Um, but another thing is sitting on the other side, let's say, of this divide. And that's the kind of, that's the theoretical side. So if you have the empirical aspects of an explanation, you also have these kind of theoretical values. And the theoretical values are about what the explanation itself looks like, how it fits pieces together, and not just facts, right, but other things, things that you might not observe, uh, stories about the world, uh, the ways in which, you know, different uh, aspects of things fit together, what, what potentially causes what, what could cause what, right? So, um, you know, why didn't he call? Al, you know what? The guy is just fundamentally a bad guy. Now, one part of that explanation that you might value is, oh, you know, it fits all these other things I know about him. Another thing is you're like, you know, you may like this kind of hidden common variable story where there are good people and bad people in the world. Right. So, you know, this is, you know, the first kind of step that, that Zach and I took was, to, you know, to tear apart these two pieces and look at them in isolation. So one of the things is that once you realize these two pieces split apart, another thing that you have is like, you know what, maybe these go to war, right? So maybe there are explanations that don't fit the facts very well, that, you know, get outcompeted by other explanations that fit the facts better, right? And yet that, that bad explanation from the point of view of the facts may be good for you, perhaps, as a kind of just fallible human being or a human being with values, right? Uh, that explanation might be good because of its theoretical merits. So you start to see, uh, maybe we can explain why you know, somebody will hang on, let's say, to an explanation that from your point of view and from the point of view, let's say, the facts is just completely inadequate, right? And yet, potentially, right, uh, this person might be holding that belief because of other epistemic values that are sitting in there. And these are these theoretical values. So power is one, unification is, is one, parsimony, simplicity. These are things that are sitting on the other side, right? That are sitting in a more abstract platonic space, if you like. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I kind of thought of uh, parsimony and simplicity as somehow different than unification and power. Uh, what do you see about those that unifies them? <laughs> right. I mean, what you've done there, Jim, and this is something that Zach and I had all the time, which is really funny, is obviously this paper, right, is about explaining explanation. Uh, you know, so hopefully, right, we can make sense of our own paper in our own framework, right? One would hope. One would hope, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, we actually, I had a wonderful conversation uh, with uh, a group in the philosophy of science department, University of Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, this was this was pointed out, right? Uh, the uh, unification is a really fun value. Um, it's uh, uh, a theory that is unifying, right? 
says that lots of things in the world, including stuff you haven't seen yet, lots of things in the world are connected in some, let's say, occult fashion, right? And I use the word occult in a kind of funny way, right? Because, of course, the most unifying theories of all time are the ones in the physical sciences, right? Um, you know, the the Higgs boson, right? The story of quantum electrodynamics, right? Um, tells you, you know, at, out the other side of that thing, you get an enormous number of phenomena, all of which are driven by you know, some underlying field, right? Some magical number that is sitting everywhere. So that's wild, right? Um, physics is a paradigmatic place where um, valuing unification is, has taken us a long way, has done really well for us. Um, but, you know, when I use the word occult, right, another way to use it is like, Christ, it's all the nutcases, right? Uh, it's all of the people who hold on to, you know, uh, beliefs, let's say, in, uh, I was going to say astrology, but I think there's something to astrology, you know, beliefs in, um, you know, the, uh, you know, Gaia is guiding all of human life towards some great, you know, apotheosis um, that, uh, you know, the uh, you know, chemicals in the water are affecting our precious bodily fluids and driving us all crazy, right? Um, so this, this value of unification is, um, is you know, it's a double-edged sword, right, for, for us in many ways. And it is, you know, to go back to this original, this split that Zach and I identified, it is one of these things that sits over on this theoretical side. And thus, to a certain extent, it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. It's like, if you like unification, and I'm someone who's prone to it, Jim, uh, I'll tell you a story if you like about this. Uh, but if you like unification, you're going to prefer certain kinds of explanations. You're going to have an intrinsic drive towards them, for better or for worse. Yep. And we talked about that, I think, in our first episode. We, uh, I called it uh, Harry Seldon syndrome, right, from mm -hmm. the Foundation Trilogy, where mm -hmm. you know many of us impressionable 10-year-olds, uh, when we read the Foundation Trilogy for the first time said, damn, psychohistory, that would be cool. You know, have mm -hmm. one set of equations that could predict all of human history. Holy shit. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, knowing when, when uh, unified unification type theories make sense and when they don't uh, might mm -hmm. be an important second order human skill. Right. As far as we know, every electron has exactly the same mass. Right. Which is pretty goddamn interesting. Right. Uh, and we can, at least at the moment, take that to the bank. And yet, you know, other unification theories, you know, hmm, the uh, all the world governments are controlled by reptilian humanoids from Tau Ceti. Uh, right. Yeah. It, it, unif it explains everything. Right. And yet it does. Right. I mean, this is, you know, Jim, I, I, I love this point you make. Right. That, um, you know, these are second order questions. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I won't speak for Zach on this, but uh, one thing uh, I think is, you know, uh, maybe a, a question for us, let's say, as a species going forward is, you know, can we get better at these second order questions, right? Can we start having conversations, not just about explanations, right? But also about the principles upon which we accept and reject them. Um, you know, this is something at the Santa Fe Institute when I first showed up, um, you know, this is... Uh, you know, this is like the cocktail party of every explanatory preference of all time, right? You know, it's like the, you know, um, San Francisco, you know, uh, bar, right? Uh, Maz Eisley Cantina. 
where, um, you know, the physicist shows up, right? And for them, any, like the more a theory is unifying the phenomena, the, you know, the better the theory is. And I remember a wonderful talk uh, given by David Pines, who's no longer with us. Um, you know, David was presenting uh, some work he had done on spin glasses, right? Which is this very beautiful, abstruse uh, chunk of condensed matter physics. And he's going on and on. And like, you know, half this room is like just you know, peeing themselves. We love it. And um, this biologist raises his hand, and the biologist is David Krakow, who you know, so maybe he's, you know, wrong called just a biologist. But David raises his hand, and he says, you know, uh, you know uh, Professor Pines, and David Pines, um, is there anything your theory cannot explain? <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, David says, the speaker, David Pines, says, um, no, isn't this wonderful, right? And for him, right, this is what, this is a sign of a good explanation, right? But for many people in the room, certainly biologists, right, this is a sign you got off the deep end because, you know, life is a complicated thing. It's messy. It's genealogical. It's evolved. It has histories. The tape gets run only once. And so, you know, that a theory that is too unifying is probably off the walls. It's, it's probably missing something. And um, so, you know, there we got used to this very quickly at the Institute of saying, okay, you know, let's have a second order debate for a moment. Like, let's put aside whether or not we can explain, you know, the you know, collapse of this you know, Aztec civilization. Let's go over to the non-collapse, right? Let's go over to, um, you know, how do you as an anthropologist value these things? How do you as a, let's say, sociologist value these things, as a mathematical physicist value these things, as an information theorist, game theorist? And you know, all of these people are bringing different kinds of, of second order values to the table. That's great. It's a lot of fun. Um, what I wonder is if uh, we might benefit from having that conversation uh, on a much broader scale. Uh, if this is the conversation we might have, let's say, in the university, uh, students go to university, they major in a subject. I see this at CMU. Great. Right. But at the same time, we train students to see the world a certain way. So when I teach a class and I have computer scientists and you know, social scientists, psychologists in the room as undergraduates, um, you can just see, right, they've been trained into a certain set of explanatory values. And the clashes are amazing to see, right? Uh, the ways in which they, you know, struggle often very successfully to, to say, you know, it's not that my explanation, it's not that this person is not valuing my explanation because it doesn't fit the facts. It's because they have a fundamentally different aesthetic for what explanation should look like. Mm. Yeah, we know what that reminds me of. You know, there's all this debate about what the uh, you know freshman uh, distributive courses should be. I got a proposal for you. Maybe you should propose <laughs> it to the head honcho there at uh, Carnegie Mellon. How about a, a first semester freshman course on how to use many lenses? Right. And have people come in from each discipline and attempt to uh, distill in one hour. Uh, what lens is it that is the principal lens in in their work? And you know, maybe have a reading uh, to go with it for the next uh, for the next class. So maybe it's two two classes per lens. One uh, a discourse on the lens by the practitioner, and then some readings. And any guy comes back and has the students uh, say, "How did you see this reading through my lens?" Wouldn't that be interesting? Um, I mean, so you know, obviously, Jim is being Carnegie Mellon, right? We we are miles ahead of the game, and we're on this. Uh, I, we, run, we run seminars here, and this is freshman seminars. One of the ones that I uh, did not participate in, but I would love to have been in, uh, was a historian, if I had a center, an epidemiologist talking about the Black Death. 
the 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 uh, bubonic plague in the 17th century and you know, 16th, 17th century in Europe. And you know the way a historian talks about and attempts to explain that, the way an epidemiologist talks about and attempts to explain that, they're complementary. Uh, but at this second order, you also start to get a sense of what makes a good historical explanation, you know, in before you even get to the data, before you even get to the archive, right? You know, what what does an what does a historian value and what does an epidemiologist value? Uh, that kind of stuff is uh, I mean you could overdo it, right? You could make everybody a um, you know, they all have second order opinions, but no first order abilities, right? Uh, you know, you, you obviously want students to get really good at, let's say, running a set of equations forward um, or let's say, you know, uh, understanding you know, system one and system two in psychology. Uh, you want them to have the first order explanatory powers. But you also, I think, uh, you know, maybe this happens freshman year and then maybe you come back to it senior year. You wrap all the way back around on the Taurus to um, reflect upon the last four years the explanatory values you got really good at and the ones that you might have uh, neglected or in fact, even been trained out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's even more interesting. And then, then sort of the, you know, the second or is it the third order, which is the discernment to know what you, what lens to use in which situation. Well, I mean, right. Wouldn't, wouldn't we love that? Right. Uh, you know, we have eight different selves and we, we know the right self to pick at any point in time. Uh, you know, a big chunk of this as metacognition, Right. Uh, not just, you know, knowing things, not even just knowing what you know, but having some awareness or some ability to understand the ways in which you came to know something that uh, knowing and, and you know, here and for Zach and I right in this paper, knowing is explaining. It's one part of knowing. Right. But that's you know, the page we're on uh, being able to say, well, what is it about this explanation that gives me the sense of knowing the answer? And, you know, are, is that a valid, is that a reliable, is that a productive way to go about the knowing task in this particular context? And we'll get a little bit to the how to trade those off a little bit later. Uh, but let's dig down just a little bit. Uh, if you could make the distinction between unification and power, they're similar, but they're different. Uh, why don't you right. distinguish between those two? Right. Well, so a powerful explanation is one that can... Uh, cover a lot of different facts, right? That it's saying it's 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 making predictions about uh, you know all sorts of different things. So um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, electromagnetism is a powerful theory, but you know if we get a little bit lower level, right? Uh, you know, you may have an explanation for your social circle that is really good. It says, you know what? When if you if you say this to Jim, I'll tell you he's going to throw you out of the room. But if you say this to Sam, right, Sam is going to you know, meditate on it for weeks and tell you you're a genius. If you say it to Mary, she's going to, you know, uh, she's going to nod like she believes you. But later she's going to tell you selfie, what an idiot you are. Right. You go on and on. Right. So a powerful explanation is one that makes a lot of specific claims about the world. Now, okay, maybe they're accurate, maybe not. If you buy the explanation, maybe you think they're accurate or going to be accurate. Um, you know, it's the kind of explanation that, uh, for example, it's the kind of explanation you want uh, a consultant to have, right? You want him to say, look, I got an account for you know, what's going on in HR. I gotta, I'm going to tell you what's going on in your cash flow. Uh, maybe this is something you want out of a car mechanic. Well, 
I'll tell you what's going on here. Your air conditioner shot, your, you know, your alternator is about to go. And, you know, it looks like the undercarriage is, is starting to rust, right? So that, you know, he's explaining all of the bumps and knocks uh, that's going on. And it's a powerful explanation in that in that case, for example, it's telling him what to do, how to work on your car. Now, uh, powerful explanations are, are many ways, maybe we like them. And to be clear, right, these are theoretical values, meaning that you're looking, when I call an explanation powerful, I'm saying it's uh, not about how well it fits the stuff I have. It's about the way it looks at, you know, in isolation from the facts I have. Uh, powerful explanations, though, may not be unified, right? They may not, for example, tie the world together. They may not say this thing that we see is dependent upon that thing. Uh, the car mechanics explanation for, you know, all the things that are going on in your car uh, may be powerful, but probably it's not going to be unified, right? Cars have many different things that go wrong. They probably go wrong roughly all at the same time, but the underlying cause of them is not correlated, right? What caused the alternator to go bad is, you know, the plastic on the insulation started to, you know, fragment, right? Fracture. Uh, what caused the undercarriage to rust is that, you know, you parked it on the coast. So uh, unification, right? Separate value. Um, and in fact, these can sometimes compete. So, you know, let's take, you know, reptilian lizards from Tall Seti. Um, you know, that explanation uh, will be very unifying. But when you actually say, all right, what are the you know, reptilians from Tal Seti doing tomorrow? You say, well, you know, these guys are pretty unpredictable. I can't tell you. Maybe they'll shut down the Internet, but maybe they'll, uh, you, know, uh, you know, shut down the air travel. Who knows? Uh, so, again, right, these, you think of these as different axes along which an explanation can be valued or not valued. Interesting. Okay. And that's closely related to the concept of co-explanation. Why don't you uh, lay that one out and how, kind of how it fits with both of the ideas of unification <laughs> and power. How about that? Well, this is great, Jim, because, uh, you know, sometimes I, uh, you know, you always worry, right? It's like, you know, you, 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 you give your afternoon speech. And it's like, is anyone actually listening? So it's great. Thanks for reading the paper, right? It's great. Uh, so, uh, you know, if we have unification on, on the theoretical side, uh, it's got its partner, right? It's got its empirical partner, right? You know, in physics, you have the super symmetric partner. This is the empirical partner. So if unification is a property of a theory in uh, isolation, right? Karl Marx, right? It's all the dialectic of history and, uh, you know, the war of the proletariat. Uh, you know, that's the theory. The co-explanation co is, all right, let's look at the actual facts that we have right now, right? Let's look at the stuff we've got sitting there and the extent to which your explanation says that those particular facts are related to each other, right? So uh, generally, right? I mean, there are exceptions. Generally, a theory that's high in unification, right, if it's correct, will also be high in co-explanation. Right. It will say, oh, you know, uh, that came up that way. This other thing came up that way. Uh, that's exactly how we predict. We predict when one is up, the other is down and vice versa. Um, so co-explanation, you can think of as, like, let's say, the cash value of the theory's unification. Okay. That's, uh, that's 
that uh, that makes some good sense, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one thing, you know, it's funny. Um, one of the things that's that's kind of in play for us, and this came out, I think I didn't really realize this, but it came out and um, we presented this to the philosophers. Um, uh, one woman said, you know, look, what you've got here, sort of an Aristotelian theory. And what she meant by that is, you know what, there's a lot of different virtues, right? There's a lot of ways in which an explanation can be good. And, you know, the key here is moderation, right? Um, you don't want to be a coward, right? But neither do you want to be foolhardy. And courage, the virtue of courage is somewhere in between, right? You don't want to be somebody for whom the world is just a bunch of disconnected, like, fuzz, right? But you also don't want to be the person who believes that aliens from Tau Ceti are controlling everything, right? You don't want to be somebody who forgets about unification, who says it's not a value, right? Neither do you want to be a person addicted to unification. You want to be somewhere in the middle. You should value it. And the real challenge here, and again, I, look, I'm not an Aristotelian, right? But this is, I was told we came up with an Aristotelian theory. The, 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 vir, the virtue here is to value the values correctly, not to overweight, not to go to an extreme, not, for example, to be too enchanted by something like co-explanation. Not to, not to be too obsessed by it, not to be too wowed by it, to value it, but not to, um, uh, to, to go overboard, to not make it the only value, to not make, let's say, an idol out of it. Except suppose it really was reptiles from Tossetti. You know, uh, we do have a line in the, in the paper, sometimes conspiracies are true. And, um, you know, the, I think that's the case, right? If, it's, if you will never believe Right. If you have some, you know, sort of psychic block or you have some prejudice, you know, you've, you've listened too much to to you know, a teacher. Um, if you will never believe that occasionally a small number of people get together in a room and decide something that, you know, ends up affecting you know, billions of people, then you're, you're missing out. <laughs> like you're missing out on life. You're also missing out on um, the ability to make sense of the world, because, yes, you know, what? sometimes a small number of people working in secret. Uh, do actually make things happen. Yeah, it's relatively rare. You know, having being someone who actually has worked in the White House, Wall Street, and big corporate America, uh, I can tell you those people ain't that smart. First, <laughs> and the old mafia rule—you know, two people can keep a secret as long as one of them's dead—is uh, also a truism. So, uh, you know, <laughs> while there while there are very occasional examples of successful conspiracies. Uh, you know, kind of my meta heuristic is those two things. Them people ain't that smart and they all fucking blab. So, uh, uh, you know, the expected value of a conspiracy is low. Hence, you wouldn't expect to have very many of them. Right. Uh, but that's not to say that the number that exists is zero, which is, which is interesting. So now let's turn to another area. And I think this is one I probably fall into using too much. I'm a sucker for the parsimonious uh, concise, sim- simple explanation. Uh, could you, you know, for our audience, tell what you mean by that, and what both the uh, uh, the good and the bad of looking for arguments or shaving with Occam's razor uh, provides <laughs> when we're when we're thinking about uh, explanation. So parsimony, and it's 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 funny, right? So uh, when we when we wrote this paper, I can't remember if we actually kept the sentence. But the more Zach and I talked about this killer word, simplicity, right? 
the more it started to look like a million different things, right? Um, so our line at, uh, at the line, I think it's in the papers, simplicity is complex, right? Um, what simplicity is, we, we know that this is a value, right? And, you know, just roughly speaking, you know, it's like, it's simple, I love it, right? Um, you know, when if, if you or I were to say, you know, we're debating something and I said, you know what, Jim? Simply said X, right? When I use that phrase simply said, what I'm really doing is saying X is a good explanation because it's simple, right? I would never say, you know, if I were to say, said in a super complicated way, X, or, you know, to be complicated about it, X, you would be like, you would think I was criticizing the explanation. But if I said, let's get simple, simply said X, you know that I'm trying to promote it to you. So then the question is, what the hell do we mean, right? What is, what is simplicity, right? Um, one answer, and you know, we have to give some definitions. So you know, our definition is how easy is the explanation to state? Right? But now the word easy is doing all the work, right? Um, parsimony is an example of simplicity. Parsimony is literally things like count the words. Um, you have more advanced versions like count the you know number of bytes in the computer program that produces the explanation, right? Um, you know, all sorts of ways into this problem. Um, but simplicity is, um, to us, it's the, it's this kind of value that we get closer and closer to. We can you know, touch it on different edges, but we can never really get right to the center. Um, you know, there's all these different ways that people will look at a, an explanation and say it's simple. For us, we're still kind of wrestling with exactly what simplicity means. Of course, historically, the, I think one of the great examples of uh, where the uh, scientific community came to uh, use Occam's razor simplicity to make a big leap was uh, the Copernican uh, revolution. You know, at the mm -hmm. time, uh, Copernicus' uh, theory of the sun and the earth rotating around the sun uh, didn't actually fit the data any better than the, uh, you know, the Neo-Ptolemaic with its epicycles within epicycles within epicycles, but it was a shitload simpler, right? And so I think people uh, were attracted to the simplicity uh, of the argument as opposed to the, by, you know, that time, the very Baroque uh, extensions upon extensions upon extensions of the old Ptolemaic theory uh, to make it continue to predict as well. And then, of course, we got better observations, the de development of uh, telescopes soon thereafter. And next thing you know, the, uh, uh, you know the, the problem was resolved. But I think that was a very interesting example where simplicity actually was a, a big thumb on the scale of people's ev uh, you know, evolution of thinking about that particular question. I think it's, uh, that's a great example. And in some sense, Jim, the Copernican Revolution is our you know, origin story for, for simplicity. Right. It's this great moment in intellectual history. Now, of course, we overblow this a little bit. Like you talk to any historian of science, they'll cancel you in a minute, right, for the, the way we're making cartoon here. But let's use the cartoon. Um, you know, that is, um, you know, it's such a clear case where simplicity is obvious to us and it's the right call. Right. Um, so, you know, that's that's a great one. In fact, Zach was that was one of the first ones that came up and we debated. All right. How can we quantify the simplicity of Copernican's, of the Copernican Revolution? Um, you know, obviously, look, many people have tried to do that, and, they, and we can talk about those efforts. 
that's a really, let's call it a simple case, right? That's a case where, you know, it's pretty easy for us all to say, yeah, I get that, right? Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, why is Botticelli a, a painting beautiful? Well, you know what? We can all agree it's beautiful. Come on. Uh, we know that that's something in play. Uh, but when we come to, you know, the 21st century, things are starting to look a little trickier, right? Um, you know, it turns out, let's say, that uh, there are many different ways to quantify simplicity and that they, you know, there's sometimes in conflict. Um, one of the ways that, Zach, can I give this an example? One of the ways people have tried to quantify uncertainty is something called the Aikaike Information Criterion, AIC, right? So AIC is like a little, you know, it's a little piece of machinery. You dump your theory into the machinery, you grind it out the other side, it gives you a rating, right? You know, it's a number that starts at zero and goes up and the higher it goes, the less simple the damn theory is. Um, people love this, right? And so in fact, it's sitting inside most of the contemporary statistical programs, right? So uh, if you're an economist or a psychologist or an epidemiologist, let's say, and you boot up Python or R, one of these programs, and you say, hey, look, do a linear regression on some stuff I care about. Uh, it will say, okay, look, here's how well it fits, meaning you know, here is the empirical value of your regression. And it will also say, here's the AIC, right? Here is our measure of how simple your linear regression is. And the simpler linear regression, it's a theoretical value. It tells you nothing about how well it works. It's just saying, you know what, it's pretty simple or not so simple. So, um, you know, that is a, you know, it's a way to cash out simplicity in a number and to sort of reliably compare and reliably meaning not correct, but just gives you the same answer every time, reliably compare relative simplicities. The only question is, that I have, and many people do have, is, is that the right measure? Right. If all of science just switched over to using AIC, would we have solved the simplicity problem? Right. And, you know, my sense is, no, God forbid we should ever offload our judgments of simplicity to an algorithm. But it's certainly, you know, as we've gone from this intuitive sense that the Copernican revolution was good for us, we get all the way to the other side and we say, you know what, uh, maybe the problem is harder than we thought. Yeah. And not all problems are reducible, right? We don't understand uh, what is driving the complexity. Uh, there's the famous H.L. Mencken quote, which goes the other way, which is every complex problem has a solution, which is simple, direct, plausible, and wrong. Now, he's going a little <laughs> too far the other way, which is to you know, avoid simplicity uh, you know, as, uh, as being itself uh, wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, so as you know, this kind of gets get to our conclusion here. Uh, you know, it seems like what you guys are saying is there's lots of different ways to think about our explanation, uh, but perhaps there needs to be some higher order way of thinking about how we think about explanation. Some, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you you know, with the, sort of the the end of your title. The uh, uh, let me pull it back up here. The uh, uh, you know, Bayesian, how do you apply uh, Bayesian reasoning to thinking about these various explanations and uh, which mm -hmm. one, which methods to explain explanations are valid and even how to, how to make sense of all this? What, what can you say as kind of closing comments for our audience uh, now that we know that we have lots of different ways of thinking about explanations? How do we think about when and, and how to use them and how to evaluate whether our using them is sensible, uh, all that kind of stuff? Well, you know, I there's there's sort of two things that I think this paper you know is trying to get people to do. Um, 
one thing is to give us a better sense of how humans work, right? Uh, how the human brain works, how the human mind works. Let's say mind, not brain. Um, we want to know, you know, what are we doing when we explain? What are we doing when we accept or reject an explanation? And, you know, somebody fascinated by the species, right? Uh, I want to know that, right? And so this, this, uh, this, this work here that we're doing is, um, you might say it's a little bit like figuring out what a human's vital signs are, right? What are the different vital signs of an explanation? Uh, what's the, you know, what are the ranges in which we, we think there's health and illness? So that's, that's one piece, right? We, we want to just, we want to understand the mind. But there's another piece here, which you might call the engineering side, right? Which is, you know, can this give us uh, a path forward to thinking more clearly uh, and in a, in a better, let's say, second order fashion about how we should be making explanations? So you and I touched upon this a little bit, Jim, in the, in the uh, discussion of education. Um, but, you know, if the first part of this work is figuring out the vital science, the second part of the work is, well, how do we make ourselves healthier? What is health? What are good explanations? If, you know, heart rate, if variability of heart rate is a sign of health, right? How do we get people's heart rates to be more variable? Is it exercise? Is it diet? In the same way for the question of explanations, we want to ask, okay, um, you know, not in a top-down way, not in a you know, authoritarian way, but that's not our style. Uh, but you know, how can... Uh, having these axes help us improve, right? Help us get better. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, I think uh, uh, that's good. Uh, any final, final thoughts in the <laughs> explanation of explanation? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff we're, we're looking forward to doing. And, you know, you and I have touched on this a little bit, Jim, um, you know, in passing, uh, which is the defects, right? Which is the aliens from Tau Ceti uh, problem. Where, you know, from our point of view, it's, you know, the things that are good for us are also bad for us, right? You know, if you don't have enough carbohydrates, you will starve to death. But if you have too many, maybe you have a metabolic syndrome. So, uh, you know, one of the big questions we have now looking forward is understanding the pathologies better. Um, some philosophers, Kazim Kassam, a great philosopher, um, has, you know, gave us the phrase vice epistemology. And uh, for us, I think the real interesting social level question is the vices of explanation, not necessarily the virtues right now. Ah, that's uh, let's wrap her up right there. Thank you, Simon, for a wonderful and interesting and hopefully useful episode. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be online with you again. And we'll do it again soon. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.